Hey family, this is David Mahan, Policy Director here at CCV. This is what's coming up on this episode of The Narrative. And I think this is where a lot of Christians go wrong. Uh, when you read the accounts of people like Carl F.H. Henry and Francis Schaeffer, when they're talking about communism, they're not talking about a different political party. They're not even talking about a different governmental system like a monarchy or an aristocracy or something like that. They're talking about a fundamental um, worldview, an all-encompassing worldview that's hostile, overly hostile. And when you read when they talk about these things, they people will people look back at you know the, the Cold War Christians and say, oh, they got carried away, they were just being nationalistic. It's like, no. When you read what they said, they didn't oppose communism because America, because communism fought America. They supported America because America fought communism. It was the reverse. Right. They didn't see the opposite number of communism to be the United States. They saw the opposite of communism to Christianity. It was, a, a, it was a completely rival system. Always honest, often blunt, and never afraid. This is the narrative. My name is Aaron Baer, and I'm the president of Center for Christian Virtue. Uh, here with my co-host, David Mahan, who's our policy director here at CCV. Uh, we're jumping into volume two of the narrative. Last, uh, last volume, we got into the topic of race and had some amazing discussions with leaders from all over the country, uh, unpacking and debunking some of the myths around the, the racial narratives in America today uh, from a Christian worldview perspective. Uh, we're looking forward to doing that uh, in volume two uh, with you. And on, on this topic, we're going to dive into Marxism. Uh, you know, this is one of those those issues as we were thinking about where we wanted to go. There was a lot of different directions, but uh, so much the undercurrent of, of the things that are dividing us today. And we even saw this pop out in the in volume one um, has its roots in Marxism. Uh, and so we really wanted to, to jump deeper into this topic, bring in some people uh, who are experts from all over the world uh, who are seeing a, a Marxist worldview uh, really wreak havoc uh, on, on, on folks, whether it's in Cuba or China uh, or even here in America today. Um, the, the first guest we're going to have uh, for, for this first episode is a guy named Tim Padgett, uh, who's with the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And we're going to kind of give a big picture, compare and contrast between a, a Christian worldview uh, and, uh, and a Marxist worldview. Uh, and, and I think what you're going to find is uh, there, there's so much more to Marxism than what, than what most folks think um, as we jump into this. But before we, we get to that interview with Tim, uh, David, good to see you, man. How was summer? Uh, how, how are you doing? What, any, any, any parting thoughts on Volume 1 before we jump into Volume 2? No, I, I loved it. And as I said before, it, uh, it was great to hear from, from such great uh, folks, just their perspectives on race historically. Uh, just by the numbers was a big episode of hearing that. I, I had a great summer, though. Um, put all that away. Went to Puerto Rico. Spent a few <laughs> days in paradise with all the family, all six of us together. And uh, God just lavished us. as wild horses running around everywhere. It was amazing, man. And then, then I came back to work. <laughs> then he had to come back to the mines here. So uh, pray for David. It's a, it's a tough life he lives. Uh, but, uh, but let's jump into sort of current events, what's going on today. Uh, you know, th there's a lot to catch up on. Some of these things are, are, are stories or things that have been happening for weeks that I've just been dying to jump on and, and talk with you all about. Uh, but the one that just keeps on, like, I feel like every day uh, there's a new angle on it. Because I think the bottom line on it is that nobody really knows what was going on is is Bishop Sycamore, uh, right. the Bishop Sycamore story, which for, for our Catholic listeners out there, you're all very familiar with the great, the world bishops. <laughs> the, great, the great Bishop Sycamore of the saint of football, apparently, or something like that. I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, this, this was, for those of you who haven't seen this, uh, it, it's a story out of Columbus that made national news um, of a football program uh, that some people thought was a school, but really just a football program. Uh, that for three years had been operating in uh, Ohio and started like this showed up out of nowhere and started competing against the, the biggest high school football teams in the state uh, and then leading to sort of the culmination of a couple weeks ago they got a, a, a nationally televised yeah, ESPN, game yeah. yeah on ESPN and uh, and they uh, <laughs> and got smoked mm -hmm. the, the team just got blown out by by one of the top you know high school football teams in the country uh, and to the point where, like, the ESPN commentators were feeling awkward about it. And we're like, this isn't safe. Yeah. We don't know how this happened. They were sharing equipment. People were getting hurt. 
and uh, it was fifty-eight to nothing was the was the score, yeah. the final score. And they, I think the the year before they ended up zero and six, and uh, apparently somebody paid them uh, a little bit. A promoter paid them to play. Oh my uh, gosh. Yeah, the squad IMG. So. Yeah, yeah. So, so this, this, you know, it, it blows up, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, it starts out. How did this happen? Who are these? Who, who is this school? It turns out they're not even really a school. They're, they're just. Well, they're saying they're a school, but they're, they're like the kids aren't actually going to school. Maybe they're going to the libraries from time to time. Like they were in existence for three years, and the more and more that was coming out, eventually, you know, our governor called for an investigation in them. Uh, and and it, it's just the, these kids were recruited from all over the country to come join this program that didn't actually exist. Yeah, some of them were 18, but some of them were 19, 20. One of them had a child. What? Uh, originally, they, had, they had 10 coaches and ended up, you know, kind of whittling down to, to just two, one of which was the founder. And, and initially, you know, when they were looking at where this school is, uh, they had one address that um, was at the Chiller Skate Rink over in Easton. <laughs> And, and Which one, is a suburb of Columbus. Right. And one was, uh, you know, Franklin University. But, um, you know, it was it was funny. They, they kind of cornered the founder, um, Andre Peterson. They cornered him, and he actually said, it is a school, you know, yeah. that, that we are, you know, taking care of the academic needs of our kids. And then it wasn't until just recently, you know, uh, the new coach or whatever said, no, we're not a school. Uh, you know, so nobody really knows what's going on there, except that they do have $110,000 worth of hotel fees that they racked up. Uh, and, and then the, the latest hotel fees uh, were, are, are still not paid. So nobody really knows what's going on there. Yeah. Well, and, and, and so, so there's the there's the kind of like audacious side of this, like apparently already. Um, Kevin Hart and some people are saying they want to do like a documentary on this. Of course, like I think this is the the I quickest turnaround from scandal to documentary because uh, it feels like it's made for TV. But the the thing that I the reason why we want to talk about this is not just because you know it's a it's a crazy story, um, but but what from the moment this thing hit, uh, you know, especially people who oppose school choice. They wanted. They they jumped on this and said, "See, this is why we can't have right. school choice. This is ex, you know, this is unaccountable. How did this happen?" And and what I was saying from the get go, and what I you know appreciated about what this other coach said, even though I don't believe much of what he says, uh, is that this, this is not a school. This is not a school story. This yeah. is a football story. Right. Um. And and look, you know, I, I'm a I'm a I'm really excited. I'm a Packers fan. Really excited for the football season coming up. You know, I'm a, I'm actually a true American like football and like David who likes to go in the woods. Yeah, I don't get know, outside. I don't Turn know what he does. But, but I, 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 I love these kids. <laughs> I, I love football. But anybody, especially folks growing up in the Midwest, we have to be able to acknowledge there's a toxic football culture, uh, and especially a toxic football culture in the cities uh, that targets you know young, primarily African American uh, boys. Who are stud athletes and exploit them for for their skills, uh, and then the minute that they're no longer you know uh, useful to them, they get tossed aside. You know, I, I saw this growing up in, in Warren, Ohio. We were a big football program there. I saw this time and time again of of kids, uh, some some who ended up going to the you know D one or going pro, uh, you know, who uh, make it big. Uh, but then the moment that their skill starts falling off, nobody wants them anymore. And they just get pushed through school. They get pushed through college if they make it that far. Uh, but they never get any life skills. Uh, and then the other, on the other side, once they no longer can dunk or they can no longer you know, throw a pass or, or catch a pass, they get tossed aside. And they've got no life skills to actually deal with the road ahead. And that to me is, this is like maybe one of the more egregious examples of that exploitation. But it just happened about. faster. Yeah. You know, it just happened faster. These kids left. One kid was from Cincinnati, got here. You know, they were staying in a hotel up in Delaware, Ohio, you know. And, and he said, you know, they weren't eating. They were having a dining dash and, you know, just things weren't coming out right. And he finally said, what am I doing? You know, he said, not not studying was fun for at first, but he said, what am I doing? Yeah. You know, and he left. Yeah. And, and that's, again, and that's one. So so there's, there's that side of the exploitative football culture. I just want to real quickly on the on the school choice side. And this is one of the things that. You know, quite frankly, really ticked me off about this story in particular was so Bishop Sycamore really we're talking four to 50 kids that got wrapped up in this over the last three years that were really hurt and exploited. And it's terrible. And this is getting all the headlines. This is getting all the attention. Uh, but Bishop Sycamore never got a dollar of taxpayer money. Uh, 
was a was a, a very isolated and unique case where you had a handful of really good hucksters taking advantage of people, um, at, at and 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 exploiting kids in a bad situation. And so now this is getting all the attention in the press here, uh, and it's they're really bashing these schools for it. However, meanwhile, while all of this is going on, Columbus Public, here in you know largest school district in the state of Ohio, gets nearly a billion dollars every year from the taxpayers, eight hundred million dollars, and they get twenty-two thousand dollars per kid. They start the school year off, and they have to shut down two, 20 of their schools, um, not because of COVID, yeah, but because their air conditioning wasn't can't afford air conditioning. And, and so, so just like, and the thing about it is this is after these kids have been blocked out of getting an in-person education for 18 months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where was the, you know, the governor put a statement out about Bishop Sycamore. Great. Where was the statement on, on Columbus Public? Far more kids were hurt with by that. Far more kids were failed by Columbus Public's ongoing failures and a lot of these school districts' ongoing failures. Yeah. And they get all this money from taxpayers. And we've just come to accept that level of failure. Oh, yeah. It happens every year. I went to school in Columbus, you know, public uh, district, and it happens every year somebody's shutting down because it's too hot in the building. So this didn't take anybody by surprise. It might be the first time we're hearing about it in the news uh, since the kids were off for so long. But, uh, yeah, every year these kids are, are missing education. Uh, and uh, and when you're looking at how much money they're bringing in as a district every year, right. even per pupil, you know, it's like, why can't we afford air conditioners knowing that this has been a problem for several decades? Well, the, well, the funny thing was we were talking with one um, uh, one individual who works in Columbus Public, and they said, well, not all the air conditioning was down. The air conditioning in the administrative offices oh, were okay. still working. All right. But yeah, just not everybody was sweating. Kids, right. right. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and, and so and, and that's, again, it, it's just... People, we need to address what happened with Bishop Sycamore. It was a terrible situation, and there needs to be more investigation into it. But make no mistake, one, this is a football story, and two, far more egregious things are happening every day on the taxpayer dime in the public education system that people just don't talk about. Um, so, sorry, we went a little bit longer on that one, but that one that one was built up that I want to talk about. Next one uh, to, to dive into is the Texas abortion law. Uh, you know, again, this is this is another one that every day there seems to be new more news uh, going on about it. You know, for, for those of you who haven't seen Texas, uh, Texas's heartbeat bill went into effect because of the novel way uh, that they uh, wrote it. Uh, that said, uh, basically, there is no state enforcement of this. This is private individuals can bring causes of action against people who uh, perform or uh, aid in the performance of an abortion or the or an, an individual getting an abortion. Um, and again, of course, you know, I think what we're really seeing in this situation now, because it caught so many people by surprise, we, we're we're really seeing the beginning of what the backlash is going to look like when we overturn that row. Not if, when we overturn row. We're beginning to get that first taste of what it's going to be like uh, when, uh, when, when Roe is overturned. I, you know, David, you, you and your wife have worked in the pro-life movement for, for a number of years. You, you guys were, you, yeah. you benefited from the pro-life movement uh, uh, early on in, in, your, in your relationship. Um, what, what was your when you saw all the news out of Texas? What, you, what was your first yeah, thought? My, my, my perspective is is one of just the bleeding hearts that they care so much for these women that it's it's not going to ban abortion; it's banning safe abortion. And so these women are going to go out and and it's the most vulnerable. This is the the language that I'm hearing so often is that it's the most vulnerable meaning the black and brown women um, who are going to suffer the most. And I'm thinking, you know, since when are babies not the most vulnerable in society? And it's like, you know, when did we not care about all? I'm hearing them talk about all of these women, you know, and, and I'm thinking about what about all these babies? You know, it's also sometimes when, you know, you'll, you'll hear on like public radio or whatever, they'll be talking about infant mortality and, and things <laughs> like that. And, you know, how many, you know, disproportionately, how many black and brown babies um, are, are dying. And, then I'm, and I'm thinking these are the same ones who just a month before were advocating for abortion. And so just, I don't know, out of the, the terminology, the language that's being used uh, to kind of stand against this ban uh, in Texas, it, it just is blowing my mind. My wife and I were talking about it just a couple nights ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, for, for us, I think um, what even that right there is, is again, sort of highlighting when the, when the, uh, 
when the final shoe drops on row and we get the chance to really start saving babies, um, you know, the, it's going to be up to us to be telling the stories of, uh, of the reality of, of how these bills are saving lives and the, and the children that are now with us. Um, and the, the, the blessing that that is, it's also an opportunity for us to love on the women in these situations that would be uh, abortion minded. Yeah. And, and I think we, we need to start telling some stories now. You know, I think a lot of times the argument that you hear um, about pro-choice, pro-life stuff is that, you know, where is the concern for lives now? You know, what about the lives that are here now? What are you doing for them? It's like all these pregnancy centers, they're not just telling people, giving pregnancy tests. They're offering clothes, they're, they're training, they're doing fatherhood classes. I've participated in many of them. They need to be telling, telling the story of all the services that they're providing to the community right now. The babies, mothers and fathers and, and, uh, and babies that are being born and, and being helping, you know, they're helping to take care of these babies now. I mean, there's there's actual babies that have my wife's name, you know, uh, <laughs> over the years from, uh, you know, just the influence that she had on that mother's life. That's awesome. Those stories need to be told yeah. now. I, I, oh, that, that just reminds me of one of my favorite things. I remember there was uh, a, you know, you, you hate to see when when uh, an evangelical goes woke and in all sense uh, lose their minds and they, they lose all, they, they lose all, all their sense uh, along the way. And there was one uh, prominent evangelical um, who made a comment uh, about the March for Life, um, and you know was like, "Oh, I wish these these people put as much time in you know fighting to overturn Roe as they did. They put as much time into fighting for for women and babies as they did uh, fighting to overturn Roe." And I was like, "Do you realize like seventy five percent of the people at March for Life all work at pregnancy that's centers right. in like, the community? That's their in, like <laughs> the, the pro life movement is primarily people working in pregnancy centers, helping babies, helping primarily moms. supported by the church. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's 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 such a nonsense. Talk about a, a nonsense narrative. Uh, the 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 narrative around the pro life movement only caring about uh, babies until they're born. Right. Um, literally, the entire infrastructure is built around helping the moms, and then once they bring their baby to term. Uh, helping them raise that child. It, it's just it's nonsense. Uh, third one, quickly here, David. Uh, and this is one, again, from, from uh, last week, but a, a really important one. This one jumped out, out to us. Um, and it had an Ohio angle in particular, but really there were 20 states that were involved with this. Uh, 20 states attorneys general. Uh, so that's the plural attorney general, not attorney generals, uh, just for those that don't know grammar as well as me. Uh, the uh, He's looking at me. Yeah, just yeah, that, to be honest with all of you. And I'm also looking at Claire over here. One of our, <laughs> she's our grammar guru, and I got to got to train her up on that one, which I got one. Back to grammar. paradise. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, 20 states attorneys general uh, brought, uh, brought a lawsuit against the Biden administration Department of Education uh, for a policy that the Obama administration had, uh, except they just put it on steroids. Um, and this was the the part the the uh, policy that says, you know, if a boy says he's a girl, he's allowed to use girls' facilities. If a boy says he's a girl, he's allowed to play in girls' sports and vice versa. You know, all, all of all of the transgender policies that they they put in place. But what jumped out at me this time that I didn't realize when we knew this policy went into effect was one of the first things the Biden administration did when they came in. Um, but what jumped out. Uh, when when I saw that our state attorney general Dave Yost joined the lawsuit, um, was that the Biden administration policy went even further on things like pronoun usage, uh, and and saying that uh, you as a that a, a school a public school could lose federal funding if they're not forcing one student to use another student's quote unquote preferred pronouns, um, and and you know one the the speech implications on that are massive but. This is one of these things, you know, for those of you who, who track with CCV, and we talked about this last uh, volume as well, you know, on the school choice side, when people say, is, you know, is this crazy, you know, transgender, LGBT ideology stuff uh, happening in, in schools? Um, you know, David, you saw this, but, but the answer is yes. Like, and this policy is all you need to, 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 to know that it's happening. It's definitely happening. Um, I remember when, when Obama tried this and, and we, we kind of squashed it. Um, you know, so many times these things go under the radar. You know, you don't ever hear about orders like this, um, especially when, it, you know, which is crazy because it's coming down from the top, from, you know, from the president's office. Uh, but it's also crazy that most people don't hear about 
um, the situations that are coming up in the classroom. If, if a parent's not sitting in the back of that classroom, if they're not, you know, simply asking for a curriculum list is no longer enough. You know, they're bringing in speakers, they're bringing in, you know, YouTube videos, different presentations that kids, uh, I was reading just the other day, you know, a group from California, a teacher from California was having folks going to uh, a rally and then they had to write a little, you know, paragraph on that for extra credit. Um, you can't just look for curriculum anymore. If you're not sitting in that classroom, if a kid's not reporting what's going on or you don't have a teacher uh, in the mix that is relaying this information, it's almost impossible to know. And so I am thankful for Yoast in this case uh, for once again, Ohio standing and pushing against, um, you know, some of this overreach. Exactly. And and uh, again, the, the, the bottom line here for me is is you might be thinking this, well, this couldn't happen in my town. No, it's happening in Definitely your school. Definitely happening. And, and, and it's mandated by the federal government. And, and you know, you know, and don't get me wrong, most of these schools aren't uh, sad about that. Um, it, it gives them cover to do this thing. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's pretty egregious. And so, um, you know, this is this is the time to, to stand. So, uh, well, uh, we're going to take a quick break uh, here and come back with our, our first uh, interview in this volume on Marxism uh, with Tim Paget from the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, so don't go anywhere. Center for Christian Virtue seeks the good of our neighbors by advocating for public policy that reflects the truth of the gospel. We empower people like you to have a voice in the culture on the most important political and cultural issues of the day. Through our public policy advocacy, grassroots activism, Church Ambassador Network, Ohio Christian Education Network, and Christian Business Partnership, there are countless ways for you to get involved. Join the movement today by visiting ccv.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. That's ccv.org and click Join the Network. Stories are a way we relate to one another. It's hard to underestimate their importance. Wessler Media is here to help you preserve those stories that you hold dear. We'll produce a personal podcast, an audio scrapbook, that will preserve those memories for generations to come. Get in touch today. Call toll-free or text 1-833-38-STORY, 1-833-38-STORY, or visit wesslermedia.com. That's W-E-S-S-L-E-R media.com. And welcome back to The Narrative. This is Aaron Baer, president of Center for Christian Virtue, here with my co-host, David Mahan, our policy director, jumping into our first interview for volume two on Marxism and sort of the clashing worldviews of Marxism and Christianity. And, and grateful, when you're talking worldview, you think Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, first and foremost. And, and we have a really special guest here with us for this first conversation where we really want to lay the groundwork uh, of this of our, our, our deeper dive into Marxism. Uh, and we have uh, Dr. Tim Pat who is the resident theologian uh, at Colson Center and Breakpoint.org. Uh, his focus is on cultural engagement, living out the Christian worldview, and the way Christians argue for diverse viewpoints while sharing a common biblical foundation, particularly regarding the relationship between church and state, Christ and culture, and war and peace. Uh, he's the author of, uh, of Swords and Plowshares and also the editor uh, of Dual Citizens uh, and has just uh, been a great blessing to the church uh, in, in really helping uh, us today uh, understand the undercurrents of the things uh, going on uh, and, and such a, a perfect guest. So, Tim, thanks for joining us. Uh, happy to be here. It's, I mean, it's always fun to be able to talk about the things that you enjoy and you study. Uh, it's like, you know, you know, throw me in that briar patch, you know, let's talk about worldviews. Let's talk about uh, foreign policy. That's uh, all sorts of fun. You know, I, I think, Tim, let's what I what I kind of want to do with you is let's start a little bit. Let's define what Marxism in Marxism is, how you would define it. And then really, you know, th this is one of those things where we could probably go really, really far back. But let's mm -hmm. uh, kind of develop over maybe the last century or so the wh where this has come from sure. uh, to put us in this modern context. So could you define a, a Marxist worldview for us broadly in, in, in broad yeah. terms? Yeah, I mean, it, it almost has to be broad terms uh, because there's kind of it's very different variations uh, that you end up seeing in culture. Uh, you've kind of got 19th century Marxism with well, Marx himself. Uh, and then you've got its, you know, Leninist aspect with the 20th century, the Soviet Union, its Maoist aspect uh, in China that split in the mid-century. Uh, and then you've got questions of, you know, cultural Marxism, critical theory, and these are definitely influenced by Marxism. And all of these things are affected by Marx. Uh, they very often don't get along with each other uh, uh, to the point of bloodshed with uh, the Russians, and the Chinese upon occasion. Uh, and even when you think about uh, things of cultural, cultural Marxism, 
uh, and critical theory. Uh, so many of these things are rooted in postmodernism, which is a rejection, obviously, of modernism. And Marxist Marxism is fundamentally modernist in understanding that we have figured it out, that humanity has figured it out. So there's lots to go on there. But in the broadest things, it comes down to, I guess, seeing uh, the fundamental nature of society as being one of a clash of powers, clash of interest groups, uh, of groups being the key thing, uh, not necessarily belief systems that that comes into play, but you see the power struggles between men, women, obviously with Marx, it starts in um, almost fundamentally, just fundamentally economic terms, socioeconomic terms. Uh, in Marx, look back at the, uh, his, the time before him uh, with the kind of the, with the French Revolution, the overthrow of the, the nobility by the bourgeoisie. And he was looking forward to a time when the bourgeoisie would, would, overthrow, would be overthrown by the proletariat, the farmers and the workers, and that would be the last revolution. And just as time has gone on, this, this idea, while beliefs change, that view of human society as being about conflict, as being about conflict between groups, has been kind of the defining thing that even without these groups that conflicted with each other, uh, that has been kind of the, the key thing, that society is fundamentally about groups and conflict. And that's, the, I think, that's the simplest way that kind of goes throughout all of these. So what's, what's really interesting, what you said there, especially about... Um, you know, the, the, the original Marxist thought of, uh, mm-hmm. and how it uh, interplays with economics. I think for most, when I'm talking with churches, when I'm talking with pastors, the things that I hear most when they think of Marxism or, or communism is they think of it as an, just an economic structure, right? So they, they see any government program and they see, oh, this is, you know, government uh, seizing the means of production, government seizing the, the control of the economy. And that's what Marxism is. It's just a uh, an economic uh, perspective. So, you know, you kind of compare, con- contrast Marxism with capitalism. Uh, and that's that's the most readily available thing that people will compare it to, I think, some folks in the church. But it's much bigger than that, uh, as you just kind of went through. It's it's much broader than that. Right. Uh, can you speak into that a little bit of, of, of why, why a lot of folks in the church think of it as a, an economic-only worldview or economic-only sure. system uh, and how it's actually much wider than that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, uh, I think that people do that because it starts out that way. I mean, Marx is, he starts out the, the mid 19th century uh, and uh, a kind of a philosopher of economics. That it, it, it's, it starts that way, but it's kind of one of those things that it doesn't stay that way because he didn't simply, he, he analyzed economic trends. He analyzed uh, the way societies traded goods, the way societies interacted with one another. But uh, the difference between him and, uh, say, just your you know, standard ec- economist uh, is that he had kind of a, um, an evangelistic zeal and an exhortative de- zeal, uh, a sense that uh, this is, it's not merely something to understand, but something from that understanding to you know, go forth and do likewise. There really is. I mean, there's a reason that people refer to communism or Marxism as a Christian heresy, because it adopts so much of the uh, the concepts, the lingo, the emphases uh, of these things. Uh, so it can, uh, yes, the short answer is yes. It, it's, it, they talk, they think of it in that way because it's, it starts that way. And also because it's comfortable to think of it that way. It's comfortable as something that, well, we can just adapt this. Okay, what is communism? Well, commune, community, let's share. And that people say that you know, the early church is communistic in that sense. And that's, uh, t- to me, I've never understood that. Uh, but there's a lot of fundamental, what I would say, like uh, one of my analogies for that kind of thing is that that's like you know, Boy Scouts and Stalin's gulags are similar because they both have camps. It, it's just a coincidence that these two things are, are, are together. Um, the, there's a fundamental difference between me offering to you and to you my goods. If I have excess wealth and I offer it to you, that is generosity. For the state to come in and take my goods and give them to you, that's not me being generous at all. That's not sharing. There's nothing in common in that sense between uh, communism and uh, Christianity, except the term and kind of the vague concept. It's a forced thing as opposed to uh, a sharing thing, a generosity thing. It seems so, so many times that, you know, when you engage in conversation around, uh, you know, Marxism, communism, socialism, you know, folks tend to kind of conflate, you know, one with the other, or, you know, would would you kind of break down for us the difference between some of those, you know, socialism versus communism versus Marxism? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, socialism is, is one of those terms that lately uh, is bandied about with a lot of use, but not a lot of specificity. I find it ironic that uh, both people who advocate for socialism and kind of hardcore libertarians, they both say, well, socialism, the fire department, that's socialism, making the roads, that's socialism. And they'll, they'll both say that. And that's nonsense. I mean, that, that is not socialism. Socialism, I would say, is, is a, a place where the government, uh, at whatever level, is, is having um, a significant control of the economic life of a society. Um, and that, that is broad. It's too much to say that, you know, the fire department makes you socialist. Uh, it's it, it, the only people who would say that is like anarchists, uh, or socialists. <laughs> um, then, uh, the difference between that and communists is, is this revolutionary aspect. It's this utopian zeal where socialism is a, you might say a manager's perspective on society that, uh, we need to, uh, put group things together. We need to share things and have the government kind of manage it. Uh, with the social, with the communists, there is this utopian element. Um, you know, whether it's the vanguard of the proletariat with Lenin, uh, whether it's with with Marx, this inevitable uh, historist, the history being the determining factor. Um, socialism is is kind of on the far left wing of. Mm, Ordinary, you can have that within a democratic society. Now, I don't advise it, but you can have it within a democratic society. With communism, it is inherently anti not just non-democratic, but anti-democratic, because it, it fundamentally comes down to an elite who makes all the decisions. Uh, one group, it, it's an aristocracy of the intelligentsia. Uh, instead of having the, the, the nobility being in charge of everything, it's the professors, the academics, the eggheads. And so the, there is a difference. One is a managing and the other is kind of an utopian zeal ordering. And that makes a big difference because if you are simply managing, you can still have a place for civil rights and things like that. So for freedom of speech and just dissent and think places like that. Uh, whereas if you have this utopian zeal that you see in communism, it inevitably devolves into tyranny. It, it always comes out as tyranny. Uh, and the death toll is... Yeah, if you look at the death toll of the 20th century, oh, yeah. it's 100 million, 100 million or so. It's just insane. Yeah, no, amen. So, Tim, can you walk through for us really the, the, the way Marxism has, has developed over the last 100 years, especially that, that trail of tears, if you will, that, that sort of trail of oppression and murder? Because, again, I think a lot of people, when they, when they think of Marxism or communism, yeah. uh, they don't really have that, that full perspective. They don't recognize, they don't associate Marxism with uh, all the murder and uh, you know all the loss of life through through the last hundred years or so. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely! Uh, it is one of those things where we're coming up um, on the anniversary of nine eleven, but we're also here in a few weeks. Will be what thirty two years since the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, and I think that a lot of people. It's been a full generation. This is a whole generation you know, that knew not Joseph. In this case, they knew not communism. They didn't see what happened. Uh, they they didn't hear the reports of the people coming over. And you see the memes on Facebook or whatever that, uh, you know, so-and-so is a socialist, whatever. And then someone you know, says everyone from Eastern Europe is just giving them a dirty look just because they experienced it. Um, and actually here at, at, break, at the Colson Center, I'll be writing up a script for a breakpoint that is uh, uh, talking about why Marx gets a pass. Uh, why, why it is that uh, you see that uh, Hitler's rightly seen as this awful, awful person. You read the accounts, it's, it's stomach turning. Uh, but that Stalin and Mao, who sadly killed even more people, oppressed even more people, around 1952, they nearly you know, a third of the world, they controlled. Through the world's population was under their thumb. Uh, and they get a pass. You still occasionally on college campuses, you see pictures of Mao, not so much Stalin for some good reasons, though occasionally you do, sadly. And they get a pass. They, uh, Marx gets a pass. And no one would think of having a picture. I mean, if someone had a picture of, of Hitler on the wall, they would very quickly and rightly uh, be fired. So why does Marx get a pass? Why do the communists get a pass? Uh, one of the reasons is because uh, Hitler's empire ended in ashes. It was crushed. The, the Red Army marched in and leveled Berlin. You could see the city, the, the burnt out cities of Köln, of, of all these German cities and the devastation. Uh, and so there was a repudiation. Whereas Stalin and Mao, they died in their beds. Stalin, I mean, they, they, they died of various diseases and whatnot. They had some hard lives, but they died in their beds. And so there was never this sense of repudiation. And so you don't see that. I don't think people are aware of it. Even those who are aware of times of the Cold War, uh, they forget that. When I was 14, 
1918. We went to Berlin. This was in 88, so a year before the, the wall came down. Uh, and it was astonishing to see, even as an American who grew up, I mean, I grew up watching all the Cold War movies, you know, Red Dawn, Wolverines, and all that good stuff, right? Uh, but you go there and you see the Berlin Wall and you see that you've got guys with hand trucks with mirrors on the bottom to see if someone has escaped from his own country into freedom because uh, they're looking under the trains and under the buses and things like that and you see that on the top of the wall there was a it wasn't just a flat wall like this you know perpendicular but had a large circular thing on top so broad that you couldn't get a handhold to pull yourself over and you got to wonder about a society that uh has a significant portion of its armed forces pointed their gun, pointed their guns at their own people. That should tell you something about a society. And you read the, the stories of, um, uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn, you, you read A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, you read these stories and the persecution they go under. And it's one of those things where you read it. And if you know your history, you know, the story doesn't end well. Because you know these people are not going to make it out because they're Christians in a hostile atheist state, and they're ethnically German, uh, so they were, you know they don't end well. Their story does not end well, and it's heartbreaking because you see the oppression. You read the accounts of um, the the famine in China between 1958 and 1960, 1962, uh, with Mao's attempts to kind of create this utopia, and the, the estimates are something like 40 million people died. Now that's not execution but it's communist policy leading to tens of millions of people dying. Uh, and you, you don't see the stories, you, you see the college students with you know, Che Guevara on their shirts. And I, I think you need to read a little bit about him. Yeah, right. And that was my next question is, mm -hmm. you know, when you hear about the carnage, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, Marxism and communism have left behind over the years, what is the cause of the broad uh, appeal mm -hmm. here in 2021 with socialism light or often you say, well, yeah, they just did it wrong. Or, you mm -hmm. know, what is the appeal? Um, is it more of a messaging of, you know, mm -hmm. the oppressor versus the oppressed type messaging that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they don't, you know, they don't want to see what's going on in the poor. They don't want to mm -hmm. acknowledge our existence. And mm -hmm. um, if mm -hmm. you don't want to acknowledge it, we're going to force you to like, what is it message? What is it? The, I think I mean, the answer to the question is yes. All, all of what you just said, a lot of it is messaging, uh, communism, sharing. That sounds good. That sounds wonderful, appealing. Dignity. They talk about just about uh, uh, recompense to the evildoer. Uh, again, this sounds very you know minor profits. Uh, you know, down with the, the unjust rulers and things like that. There is that appeal, but also again, part of it is the messaging. I don't know if you've seen that. There's a British comedy skit where these two SS officers on the uh, Eastern Front in Russia they have this discussion as to whether or not they're the baddies because they realize they have skulls on their hats. Okay, the Nazis looked bad. They sounded yeah. <laughs> bad. They're all about hatred and all this kind of stuff. They, I mean, they, they're, I mean, did they try to look bad? So that's part of the problem. But you look at, you know, socialist realism uh, art, the paintings, the posters that you see, and all these uh, pictures from Soviet Russia, and they all look dignified, looking off under the horizon. And it sounds so wonderful. It sounds so beautiful. And I think there's something appealing about that. I think that communism also, because far more so than, than uh, fascism or Nazism were, uh, it's an all-encompassing worldview. And I think this is where a lot of Christians go wrong. Uh, when you read the accounts of people like Carl F.H. Henry and Francis Schaeffer, when they're talking about communism, they're not talking about a different political party. They're not even talking about a different governmental system like a monarchy or an aristocracy or something like that. They're talking about a fundamental um, worldview, an all-encompassing worldview that's hostile overly hostile. And when you read when they talk about these things, they people will people look back at, you know, the, the Cold War Christians and say, oh, they got carried away. They were just being nationalistic. It's like, no, when you read what they said, they didn't oppose communism because America, because communism fought America. They supported America because America fought communism. It was the reverse. Right. They didn't see the opposite number of communism to be the United States. They saw the opposite of communism to be Christianity. That it was uh, a, there is a completely rival system uh, to, to explain. Because think about it. it has 
it has prophets, uh, you know, Marx, he's got the prophet's beard. He, it's got this, it has holy texts of Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital and all in Mao's little red book. It has saints. You, there's no afterlife, but there's a, almost a functional afterlife because you get to be a hero of the Soviet Union. You get to yeah. be taking part in the struggle. And I think so. It gets people want that. I mean, listen to the Soviet national anthem. It is a beautiful piece of music. It's stirring. You want to join in, and there's something powerful about that. Yeah. I, and I think one thing that it's, it's kind of a cynical. This might be this is my cynical take. One one reason that people like communism is because you don't have to question your own motives. Mm. Because if you're one of the good guys then you're working for the revolution. You're working for the good that's coming. And that means, uh, you know, you might not be an extremist and want to put people in death camps, but it means you don't have to pay attention to whether or not you're treating the other guy well, because he's the enemy and you could destroy him. There's no concept of loving your enemy. I mean, that might be the fundamental difference for all the talk about commune, community and Christianity. There's no love your neighbor. There's no, no, that's what 100, that, that's a, a lot of times. And I love that, uh, you know, uh, I'll use that same thing that, you know, the opposite of, of Marxism, of communism, isn't capitalism, it's, it's mm -hmm. Christianity. Right. And, and what, what I'll, I'll oftentimes, especially when I'm talking uh, with, with college groups, I'll say, you know, Christianity, uh, you know, we are taught uh, that we, it, Christianity value, you know, radically values the individual mm -hmm. uh, made in the image of God, someone of, of, of infinite value and infinite importance. Um, and, and that is, it matters no matter who they are or where they come from. Um, whereas uh, communism, Marxism cares about the collective. It's, it's, it's right. about, it's about the group and, and where, you know, that what I'll use to, to sort of compare contrast is that, you know, Christianity teaches us that we leave the 99 to pursue the one that that right. one person matters so much. Whereas communism teaches that you kill the one to protect right. the 99. Yeah. That it's, because it, the, the group is all that matters. The group is what matters. And so, so the individual Liberty, the individual rights, you know, that's where you're seeing today, the, the, the rise, you know, uh, uh, the rise of the conversation around uh, is religious freedom actually a good thing is free speech right. actually a good thing. Um, and, and, and that, you know, and, and I'll say too, you know, over the last few months, I've done a lot more debates around uh, critical race theory. And as you mentioned, it, it's it's got Marxist roots. Is it Marxism? No, but it's got Marxism, Marxist roots. And, uh, you know, I, I think I, I put Marxism, you know, in this because because critical race theory uh, and critical theory generally has the same aspect to it, which, you know, for, when, when you really if you read them charitably and you really try to under really try to understand what they're the the folks that perpetuate these worldviews or, or these systems think through you you kind of come around to this is this is a secular and an, an anti-god or, or a godless attempt to mm -hmm. understand a broken world right to, to to make sense of why of why is there sin make sense of the problem of evil yeah, what is the source of our pain Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, 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 and they're, they're, you know, when, when, when you don't have God and the, you know, the, the, you know, creation, uh, you know, fall redemption, restoration, mm -hmm. uh, narrative, you, you end up in this, you know, th this is one of the paths you end up going down of, of trying to explain why is the world so broken? Right. Uh, so, so Tim, can we, can we, let can we dive into that a little bit further of, you know, so we see all the suppression that comes out of, communism you know mm -hmm. it, that, that's plain for for the world to see plain in the history books for the world to see so what is it in the worldview of communism that leads to that what what's the what's the root um that 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 eventually leads to this toxic right. plant well i think you've hit on some some of it there uh we've mentioned it a little bit already uh it's the sense of uh there the eschaton is coming and it's inevitable and the group the individual doesn't matter it's the group Six, it, it's like the ends justify the means entirely because your dignity your identity is entirely tied up in your place in the revolution if you're born a if you're some poor russian minor nobility in 1920 you're going to die whether you've done anything or not you look at the Cultural Revolution in the late 60s in China uh, and these people, some of whom had worked for the communists, all of a sudden, because they had had uh, a, their grandparents had been, you know, some some uh, a business owner or something like that. They, they end up with being tortured and killed and all sorts of things like that. The absolute loyalty, uh, it inevitably leads to that. And I think also there's a, uh, there's a question of um, a simplistic epistemology. Uh, 
uh, I remember, um, I think it was about 89, I was at a, a, a Labrie Fellowship uh, conference and an American nuclear physicist was talking uh, to us about the difference from communist worldview and Christian worldview. And he was talking about nuclear power and he was talking about uh, Chernobyl. Now, at that time, it wasn't very much earlier. I guess it was about 92. So it was this, so about you know eight years, uh, eight years or, or six years earlier uh, when Chernobyl had happened. And he noted that if you go to an American or British uh, nuclear power plant, there's you know, rule books and guidelines galore, just rows and rows and rows of procedures. You go to you go to the Soviet Union, and there was like one binder. And the key was in the communist mentality, the only one who UAE would make a mistake um, if you're properly educated is if you intentionally do it. So they had no backup procedures. So they for the if, I mean uh, there was a Chernobyl movie that came out like last year, or whatever. I still haven't seen much of it. Oh, uh, the, but, the, but, I'll just say the Chernobyl miniseries. Mm -hmm. I, it needs to be required watching in every every school because it, yeah. it just shows mm -hmm. the you know the what communism does right. uh, to a society. And, and I heard they didn't pull any punches about that. No, no, yeah, yeah, unexpected about that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in, you hear stories about that uh, dissidents in communist countries down through the ages, uh, that if someone's up to something, they throw them in an insane asylum in a mental hospital. And at first I thought, uh, okay, well, that's got to be just they're trying to shame them. And that's probably a lot of it. But I think in part of the communist mentality, they actually thought they were crazy. Because how could you turn away from the goodness of communism? The only way you could uh, turn away from it. Uh, is the is uh, is because you were had something wrong in your head. Either you're malicious, or you're ignorant, or you were mentally unbalanced. And if you d get rid of the maliciousness, perhaps, and you get rid of the uh, uh, uneducated, the only thing you're left with is mentally unbalanced. And so I think that because you because they saw the world as clearly this is the right way, if you oppose them, you had to be either crazy, uneducated, or malicious. And one of those three things ends up in a very bad place. Yeah. So, Tim, I, I want to bring this now to 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 a pastor's perspective. Mm -hmm. We, you know, uh, for for a pastor that that is seeing uh, a a rise in in you know embracing of a communist worldview, mm -hmm. embracing of a Marxist worldview, maybe even embracing of of a critical theory, things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, where from you know, we I I mentioned the 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 sheep and uh, th that aspect of it. Where do you see, uh, you know, Marxism becoming and communism becoming completely um, incompatible with what uh, the Bible teaches, with what Christians should believe? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I think we've already touched on already the love, love your enemy. It's not just love your neighbor. It's not just love the member of your class, or if you get to more contemporary versions, love the member of your sexual identity group, love the member of your racial group, love the member of your whatever. It's love your enemies. And that is a radical concept that communism, uh, and I would say much of critical theory, has no place for. From the pastor side of things, I think you touched on it just here briefly. I, I feel like it's not just you know, those that, that are not Christians that don't understand love. I don't, I don't think that Christians understand mm -hmm. love anymore. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's so much easier for us to bite on something that is a pseudo love right. that, yeah. um, that you don't see my pain. They do. Mm -hmm. um, you don't care that, that, uh, you know, we're struggling or just, there's this dis disparities within the community, but they do. Yep. It, it's so I think the counterfeit message of love is one that is a lot stronger and resonating a lot more with this younger generation mm -hmm. than even the true love message that the church yeah. should be espousing. So, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, I, I focus on the messaging. I understand the theories, but for, but for me is most people that I'm working with, most people that, that we advocate for don't understand all the theories. They don't understand critical right. race theory, but they ride for it. You know, they, they're advocating for it because of the sound, because of the message of love that they hear, even though it's a counterfeit love. Right. Or the dignity. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it I'm, sticks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you could speak to that. I, I don't know yeah. if, if there's a solution in there, mm -hmm. but um, I think sometimes when we try to tear down the theory mm -hmm. without really focusing on how to. If they're telling the lie, then how do we tell the truth better? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's great. I mean, I think that one of the, this might be going backwards, but one of the, uh, one of the 
criticisms I would offer or narratives I would try and spin for someone who's embraced these things. It's like C.S. Lewis's talk about, you know, mud pies in the seashore, that you're sitting here playing with a mud pie when you, you know, there's the truth of the seashore. You're sitting here talking about these in, fully inadequate understandings of human life and society and goodness and rightness. Uh, and you don't understand there's so much more. There's so much more. There is love. There is humility. All of these things that you see in communism, that you see in critical theory that are appealing that's good. There's more. There's so much. There's more coming along. Right. But I think that one of the questions that the church has to ask itself, uh, particularly, you know, kind of elite evangelicalism, and they are asking it to some degree. I just don't think they're asking it all that well sometimes. Is how what have what impression have we been giving giving to people, ethnic minorities, poor women, whatever, that they don't feel this love, that they don't see it. And I think that's a failure of the church that we have not been properly living out the gospel. We have not been, I mean, the solution for the Christians is to be Christians. The solution for the Christians is to do, I mean, there's the, um, there's the line from uh, Emperor, you know, Julian the Apostate complaining that the Christians, uh, he tried to kind of emulate the Christians in the way uh, in kind of reviving paganism and having them care for the poor. But he he complained that the Christians not only cared for their own poor, but for other people's poor as well. I, that'd be a nice complaint for people to have for us <laughs> um i mean if we could if 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 the church spoke we have the answer we have the answers to why it is uh that someone uh, african-american who feels oppression uh who feels uh undignified by people around him or particularly looking back in history or even to the present there we have the answers to why he's right to feel angry about that we have the answer that he's made in the image of God and that any desecration, uh, whether it's you know, a full on physical desecration like in, in centuries ago or present just uh, dignity issues, we have the answer rooted in the image of God. And we're not saying it very well sometimes. And I think that the best thing we can do is, you know, this is going to be one of those, you know, actions speak louder than words. We, not, we have to have the words. That's my job to come up with the words. Yeah. But those words, those words, words must flow out into the way we treat people and the way we're proclaiming and showing the inadequacy of critical theories and communism and things like that. Well, Tim Paget from the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, resident theologian at the Colson <laughs> Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, that's a great place to wrap it up. Grateful for you being uh, with us. Uh, Tim, a- any places for, for folks who want to get connected with Colson Center? Where should they go? What should they do? Oh, goodness. Well, the uh, simplest thing, go to breakpoint.org. Uh, that's going to have our uh, you know, website. They have links to everything. Or you can go to, I think it's just Colson, colsoncenter.org. But if you just look up us online, we have several sort of... Uh, resources you can look for, whether it's your know, daily sort of those things like breakpoints and points, uh, whether it's podcasts with, uh, with a certain someone special to you. Yeah. Um, there, you got uh, a few good writers over there yeah, exactly, yeah, on, exactly. on there on the uh, breakpoint podcast. Exactly. Too, so. Yeah. So th- there's lots of resources there and we're hoping to continue to build more into that, into that kind of uh, opportunity. That's great. Hey, Tim, thanks for joining us. And uh, thanks everyone for listening to uh, episode one of volume two on Marxism here on The Narrative. We'll be back next week. 